Part Two, Chapter Nine of *The Little Nugget* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Little Nugget*, Chapter Nine. One. It was only after many hours of thought that it had flashed upon me that the simplest and safest way of removing the little nugget was to induce him to remove himself. Once the idea had come, the rest was simple. The negotiations which had taken place that morning in the stable-yard had been brief. I suppose a boy in Ogden's position, with his record of narrow escapes from the kidnapper, comes to take things as a matter of course which would startle the ordinary boy. He assumed, I imagine, that I was the accredited agent of his mother, and that the money which I gave him for travelling expenses came from her. Perhaps he had been expecting something of the sort. At any rate, he grasped the essential points of the scheme with amazing promptitude. His little hand was extended to receive the cash almost before I had finished speaking. The main outline of my plan was that he should slip away to London, during the afternoon, go to my rooms, where he would find Smith, and with Smith travel to his mother at Monaco. I had written to Smith, bidding him be in readiness for the expedition. There was no flaw in the scheme as I had mapped it out, and though Ogden had complicated it a little by gratuitously luring away Augustus Beckford to bear him company, he had not endangered its success. But now an utterly unforeseen complication had arisen. My one desire now was to undo everything for which I had been plotting. I stood there, looking at her dumbly, hating myself for being the cause of the anxiety in her eyes. If I had struck her, I could not have felt more despicable. In my misery I cursed Cynthia for leading me into this tangle. I heard my name spoken and turned to find White at my elbow. "'Mr. Abney would like to see you, sir.' I went upstairs, glad to escape. The tension of the situation had begun to tear at my nerves. "'Cabed, Mr. Birds,' said my employer, swallowing a lozenge. His aspect was more dazed than ever. "'Cabed, Mr. Birds,' said my employer, swallowing a lozenge. His aspect was more dazed than ever. "'White has just bade an—' Ah, extraordinary communication to me. It seems he is in reality a detective, an employee of Pickerton's agency, of which you have, of course, uh, heard." So White had revealed himself. On the whole, I was not surprised. Certainly, his motive for concealment, the fear of making Mr. Abney nervous, was removed an inrush of red Indians with tomahawks could hardly have added greatly to Mr. Abney's nervousness at the present juncture. "'Sent here by Mr. Ford, I suppose?' I said. I had to say something. "'Exactly. Ah, uh, precisely,' he sneezed. "'Mr. Ford, without consulting me, I do not comment on the good taste or wisdom of his action, dispatched White to apply for the post of butler at this, uh, house, his predecessor having left at a moment's notice, bribed to do so, I strongly suspect, by Mr. Ford himself. I may be rugging Mr. Ford, but I do not think so." I thought his reasoning sound. 
"'All that, however,' resumed Mr. Abney, removing his face from a jug of menthol, at which he had been sniffing with the tense concentration of a dog at a rabbit-hole, "'is beside the point. I merely begged it to explain why White will accompany you to London.' "'What?' The exclamation was forced from me by my dismay. This was appalling. If this infernal detective was to accompany me, my chance of bringing Ogden back was gone. It had been my intention to go straight to my rooms, in the hope of finding him not yet departed. But how was I to explain his presence there to White? "'I don't think it's necessary, Mr. Abney,' I protested. "'I am sure I can manage this affair by myself.' Two heads are better than one," said the invalid sententiously, burying his features in the jug once more. "'Too many cooks spoil the broth,' I replied. If the conversation was to consist of copy-book maxims, I could match him as long as he pleased. He did not keep up the intellectual level of the discussion. "'Dodsets!' he snapped, with the irritation of a man whose proverb has been capped by another. I had seldom heard him speak so sharply. White's revelation had evidently impressed him. He had all the ordinary peaceful man's reverence for the professional detective. "'White will accompany you, Mr. Birds,' he said doggedly. "'Very well,' I said. After all, it might be that I should get an opportunity of giving him the slip. London is a large city. A few minutes later the cab arrived and White and I set forth on our mission. We did not talk much in the cab. I was too busy with my thoughts to volunteer remarks, and White, apparently, had meditations of his own to occupy him. It was when we had settled ourselves in an empty compartment and the train had started that he found speech. I had provided myself with a book as a barrier against conversation, and began at once to make a pretense of reading but he broke through my defences. "'Interesting book, Mr. Burns?' "'Very,' I said. "'Life's more interesting than books.' I made no comment on this profound observation. He was not discouraged. "'Mr. Burns,' he said, after the silence had lasted a few moments, "'yes?' "'Let's talk for a spell. These train journeys are pretty slow.' Again I seemed to detect that curious undercurrent of meaning in his voice which I had noticed in the course of our brief exchange of remarks in the hall. I glanced up and met his eye. He was looking at me in a way that struck me as curious. There was something in those bright brown eyes of his which had the effect of making me vaguely uneasy. Something seemed to tell me that he had a definite motive in forcing his conversation on me. I guess I can interest you a heap more than that book, even if it's the darndest best-seller that has ever hatched. Oh? He lit a cigarette. You didn't want me around on this trip, did you? It seemed rather unnecessary for both of us to go, I said indifferently. Still, perhaps two heads are better than one, as Mr. Abney remarked. What do you propose to do when you get to London? He bent forward and tapped me on the knee. "'I propose to stick to you like a label on a bottle, Sonny,' he said. "'That's what I propose to do.' "'What do you mean?' 
I was finding it difficult, such as the effect of a guilty conscience to meet his eye, and the fact irritated me. I want to find out that address you gave the Ford kid this morning out in the stable-yard." It is strange how really literal figurative expressions are. I had read stories in which some astonished character's heart leapt into his mouth. For an instant I could have supposed that mine had actually done so. The illusion of some solid object blocking up my throat was extraordinarily vivid and there certainly seemed to be a vacuum in the spot where my heart should have been. Not for a substantial reward could I have uttered a word at that moment. I could not even breathe. The horrible unexpectedness of the blow had paralyzed me. White, however, was apparently prepared to continue the chat without my assistance. "'I guess you didn't know I was around, or you wouldn't have talked that way.' Well, I was, and I heard every word you said. Here was the money, you said, and he was to take it and break for London, and go to the address on this card, and your pal Smith would look after him. I guess there had been some talk before that, but I didn't arrive in time to hear it. But I heard all I wanted, except that address, and that's what I'm going to find out when we get to London." He gave out this appalling information in a rich and soothing voice, as if it were some ordinary commonplace. To me it seemed to end everything. I imagined I was already as good as under arrest. What a fool I had been to discuss such a matter in a place like a stable-yard, however apparently empty. I might have known that at a school there are no empty places. I must say, it jarred me when I heard you pulling that stuff," continued White. I haven't what you might call a childlike faith in my fellow man as a rule, but it had never occurred to me for a moment that you could be playing that game. It only shows," he added philosophically, that you've got to suspect everybody when it comes to a guilt-edged proposition like the little nugget. The train rattled on. I tried to reduce my mind to working order to formulate some plan, but could not. Beyond the realization that I was in the tightest corner of my life I seemed to have lost the power of thought. White resumed his monologue. "'You had me guessing,' he admitted. "'I couldn't figure you out. First thing, of course, I thought you must be working in with Buck McGinnis and his crowd. Then all that happened tonight, and I saw that whoever you might be working in with, it wasn't Buck. And now I've placed you. You're not in with anyone. You're just playing it by yourself. I shouldn't mind betting this was your first job, and that you saw your chance of making a pile by holding up old man Ford, and thought it was better than schoolmastering, and grabbed it." He leaned forward and tapped me on the knee again. There was something indescribably irritating in the action. As one who has had experience, I can state that, while to be arrested at all is bad, to be arrested by a detective with a fatherly manner is maddening. "'See here,' he said, "'we must get together over this business.' I suppose it was the recollection of the same words in the mouth of Buck McGinnis that made me sit up with a jerk and stare at him. "'We'll make a great team,' he said, still in that same cozy voice. 
If ever there was a case of fifty-fifty, this is it. You've got the kid, and I've got you. I can't get away with him without your help, and you can't get away with him unless you square me. It's a standoff. The only thing is to sit in at the game together and share out. Does it go?" He beamed kindly on my bewilderment during the space of the time it takes to select a cigarette and light a match. Then, blowing a contented puff of smoke, he crossed his legs and leaned back. "'When I told you I was a Pinkerton's man, Sonny,' he said, "'I missed the cold truth by about a mile. But you caught me shooting off guns in the grounds, and it was up to me to say something.' He blew a smoke-ring and watched it dreamily till it melted in the draft from the ventilator. "'I'm Smooth Sam Fisher.' he said. 2. When two emotions clash, the weaker goes to the wall. Any surprise I might have felt was swallowed up in my relief. If I had been at liberty to be astonished, my companion's information would no doubt have astonished me. But I was not. I was so relieved that he was not a Pinkerton's man that I did not really care what else he might be. It's always been a habit of mine, in these little matters," he went on, to let other folks do the rough work and chip in myself when they've cleared the way. It saves trouble and expense. I don't travel with a gang, like that bone-headed buck. What's the use of a gang? They only get tumbling over each other and spoiling everything. Look at Buck. Where is he? Down and out. While I... He smiled complacently. His manner annoyed me. I objected to be looked upon as a humble cat's paw by this bland scoundrel. "'While you what?' I said. He looked at me in mild surprise. "'Why, I come in with you, Sonny, and take my share like a gentleman.' "'Do you?' "'Well, don't I?' He looked at me in the half-reproachful, half-affectionate manner of the kind old uncle who reasons with a headstrong nephew. "'Young man,' he said, "'you surely aren't thinking you can put one over on me in this business. Tell me, you don't take me for that sort of ivory-skulled boob. Do you imagine for one instant, Sonny, that I'm not next to every move in this game? Are you deluding yourself with the idea that this thing isn't a perfect cinch for me?' Let's hear what's troubling you. You seem to have gotten some foolish ideas in your head. Let's talk it over quietly." "'If you have no objection,' I said. "'No. I don't want to talk to you, Mr. Fisher. I don't like you, and I don't like your way of earning your living. Buck McGinnis was bad enough, but at least he was a straightforward tough. There's no excuse for you.' "'Surely we are unusually righteous this p.m., are we not?' said Sam suavely. I did not answer. "'Is this not mere professional jealousy?' This was too much for me. "'Do you imagine for a moment that I'm doing this for money?' "'I did have that impression. Was I wrong? Do you kidnap the sons of millionaires for your health?' I promised that I would get this boy back to his mother. That is why I gave him the money to go to London, 
and that is why my valet was to have taken him to—to to where Mrs. Ford is." He did not reply in words, but if ever eyebrows spoke, his said, "'My dear sir, really!' I could not remain silent under their patent disbelief. "'That's the simple truth,' I said. He shrugged his shoulders, as who would say, "'Have it your own way. Let's change the subject.' You say, was to have taken. Have you changed your plans? Yes, I'm going to take the boy back to the school. He laughed, a rich rolling laugh. His double chin shook comfortably. It won't do, he said, shaking his head with humorous reproach. It won't do. You don't believe me? Frankly, I do not. Very well, I said, and began to read my book. If you want to give me the slip, he chuckled, you must do better than that. I can see you bringing the nugget back to the school. You will if you wait, I said. I wonder what that address was that you gave him, he mused. Well, I shall soon know. He lapsed into silence. The train rolled on. I looked at my watch. London was not far off now. The present arrangement of equal division, said Sam, breaking a long silence, holds good, of course, only in the event of your quitting this fool game and doing the square thing by me. Let me put it plainly. We are either partners or competitors. It is for you to decide. If you will be sensible and tell me that address, I will pledge my word. Your word, I said scornfully. Honor among thieves," replied Sam, with unruffled geniality. I wouldn't double-cross you for worlds. If, however, you think you can manage without my assistance, it will then be my melancholy duty to beat you to the kid and collect him and the money entirely on my own account. Am I to take it," he said as I was silent, that you prefer war to an alliance? I turned a page of my book and went on reading. If youth but knew, he sighed. Young man, I am nearly twice your age, and I have, at a modest estimate, about ten times as much sense. Yet, in your overweening self-confidence, with your ungovernable gall, you fancy you can hand me a lemon. Me! I should smile. Do, I said. Do while you can. He shook his head reprovingly. You will not be so fresh, Sonny, in a few hours. You will be biting pieces out of yourself, I fear. And later on, when my automobile splashes you with mud in Piccadilly, you will taste the full bitterness of remorse. Well, youth must buy its experience, I suppose." I looked across at him as he sat, plump and rosy and complacent, puffing at his cigarette, and my heart warmed to the old ruffian. It was impossible to maintain an attitude of righteous iciness with him. I might loathe his mode of life, and hate him as a representative, and a leading representative, of one of the most contemptible trades on earth, but there was a sunny charm about the man himself which made it hard to feel hostile to him as an individual. I closed my book with a bang and burst out laughing. "'You're a wonder,' I said. 
He beamed at what he took to be evidence that I was coming round to the friendly and sensible view of the matter. "'Then you think, on consideration,' he said. "'Excellent. Now, my dear young man, all joking aside, you will take me with you to that address, will you not? You observe that I do not ask you to give it to me. Let there be not so much as the faintest odour of the double cross about this business. All I ask is that you allow me to accompany you to where the nugget is hidden, and then rely on my wider experience of this sort of game to get him safely away and open negotiations with the dad." "'I suppose your experience has been wide,' I said. "'Quite tolerably, quite tolerably.' Doesn't it never worry you, the anxiety and misery you cause? Purely temporary both. And then, look at it in another way. Think of the joy and relief of the bereaved parents when Sonny comes toddling home again. Surely it is worth some temporary distress to taste that supreme happiness. In a sense, you might call me a human benefactor. I teach parents to appreciate their children. You know what parents are. Father gets caught short in steel rails one morning. When he reaches home, what does he do? He eases his mind by snapping at little Willie. Mrs. Van First Family forgets to invite Mother to her freak dinner. What happens? Mother takes it out of William. They love him, maybe, but they are too used to him. They do not realize all he is to them. And then, one afternoon, he disappears. The agony the remorse. How could I ever have told our lost angel to stop his darned noise? moans father. I struck him, sobs mother. With this jeweled hand I spanked our vanished darling. We are not worthy to have him, they wail together. But, oh, if we could but get him back! Well, they do. They get him back as soon as ever they care to come across an unmarked hundred-dollar bills. And after that, they think twice before working off their grouches on the poor kid. So I bring universal happiness into the home. I don't say father doesn't get a twinge every now and then when he catches sight of the hole in his bank balance, but, darn it, what's money for if it's not to spend?" He snorted with altruistic fervor. "'What makes you so set on kidnapping Ogden Ford?' I asked. "'I know he is valuable but you must have made your pile by this time. I gather that you have been practicing your particular brand of philanthropy for a good many years. Why don't you retire?" He sighed. "'It is the dream of my life to retire, young man. You may not believe me, but my instincts are thoroughly domestic. When I have the leisure to weave daydreams, they center around a cozy little home with a nice porch and stationary wash-tubs. He regarded me closely, as if to decide whether I was worthy of these confidences. There was something wistful in his brown eyes. I suppose the inspection must have been favorable, or he was in a mood when a man must unbosom himself to someone, for he proceeded to open his heart to me. A man in his particular line of business, I imagine, finds few confidants, and the strain probably becomes intolerable at times. Have you ever experienced the love of a good woman, Sonny? It's a wonderful thing." He brooded sentimentally for a moment, then continued, 
and, to my mind, somewhat spoiled the impressiveness of his opening words. The love of a good woman, he said, is about the darndest wonderful layout that ever came down the pike. I know. I've had some. A spark from his cigarette fell on his hand. He swore a startled oath. We came from the same old town, he resumed, having recovered from this interlude. Used to be kids at the same school, walked to school together, me carrying her luncheon basket and helping her over the fences. Ah, just the same when we grew up. Still pals, and that was twenty years ago. The arrangement was that I should go out and make the money to buy the home, and then come back and marry her." "'Then why the devil haven't you done it?' I said severely. He shook his head. "'If you know anything about crooks, young man,' he said, "'you'll know that, outside of their own line, they are the easiest marks that ever happened. They fall for anything. At least it's always been that way with me.' No sooner did I get together a sort of pile and start out for the old town, when some smooth stranger would come along and steer me up against some skin game, and back I'd have to go to work. That happened a few times, and when I did manage at last to get home with the dough, I found she had married another guy. It's hard on women, you see, he explained chivalrously. They get lonesome, and roving Rupert doesn't show up so they have to marry stay-at-home Henry just to keep from getting the horrors. "'So she's Mrs. Stay-at-home Henry now,' I said sympathetically. "'She was till a year ago. She's a widow now. Deceased had a misunderstanding with a hydrophobia skunk, so I'm informed. I believe he was a good man. Outside of licking him at school, I didn't know him well. I saw her just before I left to come here.' She's as fond of me as ever. It's all settled, if only I can connect with the Mazuma. And she don't want much either, just enough to keep the home together." "'I wish you happiness,' I said. "'You can do better than that. You can take me with you to that address.' I avoided the subject. "'What does she say to your way of making money?' I asked. "'She doesn't know, and she ain't going to know. I don't see why a man has got to tell his wife every little thing in his past. She thinks I'm a drummer, traveling in England for a dry-goods firm. She wouldn't stand for the other thing, not for a minute. She's very particular, always was. That's why I'm going to quit after I've won out over this thing of the little nugget." He looked at me hopefully. "'So you will take me along, Sonny, won't you?' I shook my head. You won't? I'm sorry to spoil a romance, but I can't. You must look around for some other home into which to bring happiness. The Fords is barred." "'You are very obstinate, young man,' he said sadly, but without any apparent ill-feeling. "'I can't persuade you?' "'No. Ah, well, so we are to be rivals, not allies. You will regret this, Sonny. I may say you will regret it very bitterly. When you see me in my automo— You mentioned your automobile before. Ah, so I did. The train had stopped, as trains always do on English railways, before entering a terminus. 
Presently it began to move forward hesitatingly, as if saying to itself, Now am I really wanted here? Shall I be welcome? Eventually, after a second halt, it glided slowly alongside the platform. I sprang out and ran to the cab rank. I was aboard a taxi, bowling out of the station before the train had stopped. Peeking out of the window at the back, I was unable to see Sam. My adroit move, I took it, had baffled him. I had left him standing. It was a quarter of an hour's drive to my rooms, but to me, in my anxiety, it seemed more. This was going to be a close thing, and success or failure a matter of minutes. If he followed my instructions, Smith would be starting for the Continental boat train tonight with his companion, and, working out the distances, I saw that, by the time I could arrive, he might already have left my rooms. Sam's supervision at Sandstead Station had made it impossible for me to send a telegram. I had had to trust to chance. Fortunately, my train, by a miracle, had been up to time, and at my present rate of progress I ought to catch Smith a few minutes before he left the building. The cab pulled up. I ran up the stairs and opened the door of my apartment. "'Smith!' I called. A chair scraped along the floor, and a door opened at the end of the passage. Smith came out. "'Thank goodness you have not started. I thought I should miss you. Where's the boy?' "'The boy, sir?' "'The boy I wrote to you about.' "'He has not arrived, sir.' "'Not arrived?' "'No, sir.' I stared at him blankly. "'How long have you been here?' "'All day, sir.' You have not been out? Not since the hour of two, sir. I can't understand it, I said. Perhaps the young gentleman changed his mind and never started, sir. I know he started. Smith had no further suggestion to offer. Pending the young gentleman's arrival, sir, I remain in London. A fruity voice spoke at the door behind me. What? Hasn't he arrived? I turned. There, beaming and benevolent, stood Mr. Fisher. "'It occurred to me to look your name out in the telephone directory,' he explained. "'I might have thought of that before.' "'Come in here,' I said, opening the door of the sitting-room. I did not want to discuss the thing with him before Smith. He looked about the room admiringly. "'So, these are your quarters,' he said. You do yourself pretty well, young man. So, I understand that the nugget has gone wrong in transit. He has altered his plans on the way. I can't understand it. I can. You gave him a certain amount of money? Yes, enough to get him to where he was going. Then, knowing the boy, I should say that he has found other uses for it. He's whooping it up in London, and I should fancy having the time of his young life. He got up. This, of course, he said, alters considerably any understanding we may have come up to, Sonny. All idea of a partnership is now out of the question. I wish you well, but I have no further use for you. Somewhere in this great city the little nugget is hiding, and I mean to find him, entirely on my own account. This is where our paths divide, Mr. Burns. Good night. End of Part 2, Chapter 9